everybody, and welcome to the first episode of 2024 for Blue Grid Radio. Uh, Zach here, as always, with my good pal Clint. How's it going, man? Oh, buddy, it, it's it's been some days, man. It's, yes, it's it has. Been Yikes! Mm-hmm. How things going with you? Um, they're going. That that I I came back to work today. I unlike you, actually had a little bit of a break, mm-hmm. but it really wasn't a break. Um, because when you have a college job and you stop teaching, doing all the administrative stuff, that's my like three day window to actually or three week window to actually do the science that I've been waiting to do all freaking semester. So I wrote some crayfish papers and yeah. made got a proposal done that I had to get done a month ago. So hopefully that gets funded. But yeah, no, that's been me. But uh, <laughs> you've had a, a busy couple days. <laughs> oh, man, it's uh, it has definitely been a a rather rough New Year's weekend uh, for sure, and it, not just for me, but for the Metazotics team. To be honest with you, so for those that are on my Facebook page, uh, you may have seen that on Friday, um, my my son was diagnosed with uh, type one diabetes, um, and he has spent. Well, today is Tuesday, um, and so from Friday morning until just a few hours ago, he, he's been in the hospital. Um, and it's, you know, obviously we knew something was wrong, and of course my mind goes to the absolute worst, and I'm, you know, just, uh But uh, so to get that diagnosis, it was on one hand, oh, you know, now he's got to deal with this yeah. his entire life. On the other hand, it's something manageable. Yes. You know, so it was it was a relief. And uh, so now it comes down to learning how to navigate, you know, mm-hmm. all this this newness, you know, with him at home. And uh, but he is a strong, tough little boy, nine years old, and he's already pricking his own finger and giving yeah. himself injections. I mean, it's so couldn't be more proud of him. Um, yeah, I don't know if I could do that. So the fact that he's doing that. Yeah. yeah. Without flinching. I mean, yeah. not one single flinch from this kid. He's. He's a trooper, so you know, so happy to have him home. Um, that that was my New Year's weekend. Um, kind of working in shifts as far as who's going to stay at the hospital, mm-hmm. you know, and and keep him. Now he's he was great. He was doing fine the whole time that he was there. But you know, somebody obviously we want a parent there with him at all times. So, and we've got two other little ones at home. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was my. Uh, my weekend, and when I say that it was rough for the entire Metazotics team, so there was me. I had an associate who, unfortunately, her mother passed away this weekend. Oh, I had another goodness. associate who had their aunt pass away this weekend. And a fourth associate who spent uh, the weekend in the hospital with their fiancé. I mean, it was just, wow. Oh, I, God. I <laughs> yeah. God, yeah. that's not okay. I mean, no, it's... For those of us that were in the hospital, everybody's home now, you know, and, and very happy for that. But yeah, it was, I, I just, I mean, couldn't believe how much was happening, you know, around us. And, mm-hmm. uh, but we're here. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the shop was closed Sunday and Monday, um, which we always are, but uh, we opened up again today. And um, I, I'll be happy to say that this year we now have goals. Yeah, volume goals nice. because we, I, I, you know, have comp numbers to mm-hmm. compare to and, and to go against, and uh, we are already starting 
way above, you know, in anticipation <laughs> on the first day of the year. So, so that's good. Um, and hopefully all that bad new year's is 2023. Now, yeah. So, well, tonight's going to be good. Yeah. Tonight's going to be good. How about that? So, yeah. uh, Tonight we have Kayla Martin with us. Uh, Kayla has a, a, a social media presence. Uh, many of you um, are aware of Kayla as a Honduran milk snake breeder. So that's one of the things we will be talking about tonight. But um, equally, I know that there's at least a handful of you that listen that recommended Kayla based off of her kind of oddball snake collection and her naturalistic vivariums, which are simply badass that's all i'm going to say about that yeah, so we're going to be talking with her shortly about both of those um facets and yeah i hope your year starts with a a different trajectory there clint thank <laughs> so, you so much buddy i'm mm-hmm. sure that it's going to yeah okay so um just general updates i really don't have any updates i like i said i got off a break i did the little bit of, of working I, that I had to do. Um, I'm still in the midst of brumation. Uh, the past three weeks here have been insane with temperatures. The week of Christmas, it got up to like 68 degrees in Wheeling, West Virginia. So I was checking the infamous brumation corner and it got up to around 60, 61. And then three days later, it was all the way down around 48 degrees. So, you know, whatever the hell's going on in those snakes, I don't know. We're going to, find out um we had elements of this last year but not quite like it's been uh but this is my time to just basically kind of review the animals figure out what's going to be paired up i'm not i don't know what i'm going to do with breeding we'll talk about that at a later point in time on the one hand i'm like breed everything send everything (laughs) to clint (laughs) i like that plan i know (laughs) and then on the other hand i'm kind of like well, maybe we should be a little bit more selective, but in reality, anybody that knows me knows it's going to be breed everything and send it all to Clint. So <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I mean, I guess I have one thing. I never in a million years thought I would have eggs hatching over Christmas, but I had that was Christmas cool. Day false water cobras. One is named Jesus. One is <laughs> named Jesus. One is named Mary. Like I told the Zeus side kids, all biblical names. And we don't name snakes, but that's totally going to happen with them. Um, so, uh, and I believe we even had a New Year's baby, which was pretty cool because they, when they hatch, they don't normally like just hatch. It's a, it's like days with a big clutch, and that was a big clutch. So, but the fact I had falsies hatching, and this is the week I normally pair them. Um, this false water cobra thing's gotten a little out of control, as far as I'm concerned. But you know. I'm going to keep doing it because I love them dearly. Uh, but that's really it for me. Any, I mean, you kind of gave your update, but any other things as far as the shop is concerned? Or It's a lot of kind of putting it back together, to be yeah. honest with you. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the This past month, I mean, we, we are a retail shop, you know, so when it comes to habitats, caging, supplies, we've been hammered. Mm-hmm. Um, I... <laughs> It hurts my soul whenever I have to order this much product. Yeah. <laughs> you know, when I'm writing those checks or mm-hmm. clicking, you know, submit payment for as much as what we had to, to replenish. Um, but uh, uh, I, I'm also looking now, I've got to take another big trip to North Carolina to mm-hmm. stock back up on all our caging. 
um, it, it's, it's interesting on, you know, how much is, is really, really moved and, and exciting, you know, at the same yeah. time. Um, especially the type of product that I see moving excites me because it's, it's not just your basics. It, it's cool. you know where people are really wanting to set the animal up right, you know, and mm-hmm. set it up for success. So, um, so that's really exciting. That's, we've got all the colubrids down. I think I'd already said that on the last one. Um, we have now moved all animals out of our holdback room into the nursery. Um, mm-hmm. And we are now wall to wall when it comes to uh-huh. caging in the nursery. We're set, which now we get to kind of shuffle some things into bigger caging. Um, some of those that have been around longer than anticipated as far as, you know, babies and whatnot. Um, so that's, that's exciting as well. Um, now I just need to get that room that we now have empty mm-hmm. uh, situated so it can be a cool down room. And then whenever we warm up, that'll become our, our arid room. Uh, so we've got that. I've got new caging in for our breeding, um, breeding colony of bearded dragons. No, oh, nice. And so I just need to get all that put together and set up. Uh, we're going to be setting all those up on luminize as well. So pretty excited to oh, that's have cool. that happen. Um, Gosh, I think that's, I mean, it always feels like there's so much. And as soon as I stop talking, I'll think of 10 other things. Oh, I could have said that. I could have said that. Um, but yeah, it's just, you know, it's always, it's always busy. It doesn't matter mm-hmm. what's really going on. There's always so much happening and it's been all really positive things, really good stuff. And I'm really, really looking forward to this, this year. Yeah. So. I'm I'm looking forward to this year. Um, 2023 was a weird year for me. The first half of 2023 was great. And then July hit and things just on, on the herb front, it was great all year, but there were just things with people. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> I, it, the, my interactions with people drove me to spend a gratuitous amount of time with my snakes. <laughs> so yeah. anyway, and uh, I, I've, I've kind of gotten and dealt with that and we are moving on to bigger and better and greener pastures. So uh, I am, I'm very much looking forward to 2024. Last thing I did at the end of the semester, uh, is I did I put out that call with our students to make um basically my little hogno snake research group uh cuz I've got big plans for the book and it is now 2024 so there's no more talking now there's doing and um we have our first meeting next Tuesday I think uh and just the response I had from our students was awesome and it's cool to know I got a bunch of young people that are like enthusiastic and they want to go and I told them all, like, this isn't just running around Colorado and Minnesota catching hognose snakes. Like, you got to nerd out and read. <laughs> you got to find journal articles, which is like, bleh. And um, I explained to all of them what that process entailed. And I can honestly say that a couple of them are nerds like me. And we're like, this is going to be awesome because I actually enjoy that process. So uh, that all kicks off next year. Or not, well, it's this year, next week. So, yeah, no. Good things are foot stuff. Yep. You you know, I think something else we may want to share and we don't have to go into, you know, all the details obviously, but for our listeners, you you guys may uh, like to know we, Zach and I uh, had a, you know, an hour plus meeting, uh, zoom meeting where what we've done is sat down and we started compiling a list of potential guests for 2024. we We started compiling a large list of topics for the shows. Um, as well as new things that maybe we want to roll out and implement. Um, I think one 
is probably one that we've really been looking forward to. And I think we yeah. probably go ahead and say that now. We, on we should. Like yeah. So Zach and I are wanting to do at least three, maybe four, you know, kind of get a feel for how we should, but we want to do some live episodes um, where there's video where um, our listeners can comment, can ask questions, um, can interact. And uh, obviously we will set dates for those well in advance. So everyone's got yep. plenty of time to, you know, uh, plan for it if it's something that they would like to listen to and participate in. But um, I think that that's something that it's really interested both of us for a while. And yep. uh, this year we, we're going to make it happen a few times. So uh, that's cool. But that that's just one. That's just one of the that's pieces one. that we came in. And it's a lot of good stuff. And uh, I think we're going to have more of those sit down brainstorming sessions so that we can continue to try to bring a good show. Yeah, we um, and that's where. You all are important. We say this at the end. I'm going to say it now. Uh, for the love of goodness, people, if there's anything colubrid oriented you want, message us. Um, so we know uh, because we're, we, we are very self. We're not self-serving, but we are at the same time. I mean, let's be real. We have a Honduran milk snake guest tonight, and I happen to love Honduran milk snakes and don't know as much as I should. <laughs> so there's that. Uh, but uh if there's species, we've had a couple people do this in the past week. And and if you did that and you reached out to us, it's on the spreadsheet. Like, we know, okay, listeners want this. So don't be bashful. Hit up Clint. Hit up me. Hit up our Instagram account, our Facebook account. Facebook. Uh, we, 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 we need we to talk them. about that. We yeah. need to talk about Facebook. Oh, yes, we do need to talk about that. So, uh but please, 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 please give us the information because otherwise we're just going to keep trucking ahead with our own um, motives. And and that obviously has worked to this point, but we would love to have some of that. So, yeah, I guess we should talk about the Facebook account. So uh, <laughs> we've got some issues <laughs> with the current yes. Facebook, the Kluber and I'm Kluber older radio. than dirt. That is the <laughs> issue. <laughs> um so it's the way that it was originally set up, I think, is causing some hurdles for us now, mm -hmm. um, and we can't break through it for some reason. No. So the current Colubrid and Colubroid Radio Facebook account is probably going to be shut down so that we can create a new one, um, that we can open it the way that we want it to be opened, that there uh, we can have a lot more engagement on it, uh, interaction as well as posting abilities and, and things like that for us. So. If you see it disappear, we haven't disappeared. We're coming back in a brand new way. So, um, yeah. and we'll obviously mention that on the several you know episodes coming uh, to make sure everyone knows about it. But we just figured we might as well mention that yep. now because we'll probably take care of that within the next week or so. Yes, I, I'm pretty sure our Instagram account will stay. And to be brutally honest, the posts on Instagram seem to get way more traction than the ones on Facebook. But then again, I know you don't necessarily. You read those on Facebook, don't necessarily like or respond to them, and I get that. Um, and I think Instagram can stay, from what I can tell. It's just we have to potentially send our Facebook page off to pasture and start again because, like I said, I'm I'm the one with the passwords. I'm the one with the information, and I can't seem to figure anything out. <laughs> so, uh Yeah. PhD in this case stands for piled higher and deeper because I don't know what the hell I'm doing. <laughs> Anywho. Okay. But yeah, that's that. So I guess we'll get on to our, our little market science piece and then we'll move on to the guests. So uh, do you want to go first? Do you want me to go first? 
I can jump in it. Mine won't be too right. long. Go for it. Um, so there, I'm still looking at getting some year-end numbers uh, from other sources so I can give some bigger market analysis. But I'll tell you, so far, it's looking like the trends are matching kind of the, the expectation I gave on our last episode. Uh, and what that is is the retail sector uh, continued to play fairly strong even after Christmas. So the final week 52, we call it. Uh, so week 52 of the year still continued to move. And there was a, a large amount of gift cards that came through, you know, that I witnessed. I uh, reached out to some other friends that own um, own shops, and they kind of saw the same thing. And it wasn't just gift cards. I'll tell you another thing that adds to week 52 whenever – and it's not a theory, uh, but Christmas cash. And, and what I mean is a lot of people get money for Christmas, and I can tell you that is certainly something that comes in through the shop because the cash deposits for the store – were much higher in week 52 than really any other weeks, you know, through the years, definitely more credit card transactions. Um, so that's just something to kind of put, put in the back of your mind as far as how the cycles go and uh, what to expect. Um, the animal sales, uh, I, again, I'm kind of expecting them to slow up for the next maybe three weeks, four weeks. Um, I think I had it noted in 2023 that it was right at the beginning of week two in February that tax money started to come in. And that's whenever you would see animal sales start to tick up again. Uh, that's probably going to happen. That'll happen online. It'll happen in shows and in retail. So it's going to hit all three sectors there. Um, to give just an idea, you know, you've, you've heard me kind of talk about, um, in the past, well, since we've been doing marketing updates, that the market isn't as soft as what it's, you know, people say. Um, it's more or less just there's certain segments that are a little more saturated. Um, and I'll, I guess, I, you know, I want to kind of give that a little bit of a perspective. So I, I'm, you know, one location. I'm, I'm a brick and mortar pet store online, though we do have that as well as uh, the regional shows. And this year in 2023, uh, 830 animals left what? our facility. Um, and, and I'm one person, you know what I mean? We've got the team. Don't get me wrong. I'm not the yeah. only one doing it, but as far as, you know, breeder, I'm, I'm one breeder here. Um, and like I said, so 830 animals and to keep it, uh, with colubrids here, 38% of those. Or colubrids. Nice. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, and that was uh, definitely our highest category. Uh, we had um, the second highest was ball pythons coming in at 18%. Uh, so there were 316 colubrids that left here, 151 ball pythons. Um, and number three, lizards, which there's a, a few Euromastics and, and like some um, a frilled lizard, things like that. But 112 lizards left in the bulk. I'd say at least a hundred of those were bearded dragons. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but you know, again, just wanted to kind of continue to put it in perspective on, on what's moving and, and what's not. Um, and, uh, you know, with these numbers, I will still give the advice, breed what you like, breed what mm -hmm. you enjoy. Uh, because if you're just doing it for what's popular, I can tell you what's popular today is not going to be popular by the time you're producing it. 
you know, so, so stick with what you like. Uh, this is just to kind of give you overall big views, I guess. So, uh, that's about what I've got this round. All right. I have a, a fun paper. It's open access. Every time I do this, I try to find a paper that if I talk about it, you can find it. So if you want to find this paper, just write a note. Um, if you type in the word conservation biology, translocation snakes, those four words into Google, uh, this will show up. And I am literally reading bits and pieces of this off of my browser. So um, when it comes to conservation, many of you know, I'm big into that. Uh, it's what my PhD is in, essentially. And that's what I have the programs here at the university. They all have a tie back to conservation in some way, shape, or form. Uh, and one of the things that I think is really cool and that people are interested in is where we breed snakes in human care. And ultimately the goal is to get them out into the wild. And so um, one aspect of that type of biology, uh, it's called ex situ conservation, uh, then to an in situ situation is uh, what we call translocation. So if you take a snake from the OCIC, a place where we've done, we have our collaboration with Dr. Bogan and, they breed more indigo snakes, I think, than any facility in AZA. Uh, they keep those animals. They head start them, which means you keep them in human care and get them up and running and get them past bite size. You want them to be to a point where they're big enough that they can actually maybe defend themselves against a potential predator, but not so big that they're adults with adult tendencies towards territories and blah, blah, blah. So we call that translocation. And so the title of the paper is A Systematic Review of Snake Translocations to Identify Potential Tactics for Reducing Post-Release Effects. So what that basically means in English is we're going to look at all the papers that have been done and published in the past decade uh, on translocation, and we're going to try to use some fancy modeling methods to see if there's like some – technique that was present in a given group of the papers that then led to post-release success. And the way you measure that usually is you can do things like put radio transmitters in the snakes and then follow them around after you release them and then see like, how long do they exist with a transmitter? Are they eaten immediately? Um, do they go out to the roads and get crunched? Um, or at the end of the transmitter's life, is the snake still alive? So usually that's considered a measure of success because most of these transmitters you put in these animals, depending on the size of the snake, if it's a massasauga, it's a smaller transmitter than an indigo, but they're going to last six to 10 months. Um, and, and sometimes you can get them where they, if you can dish out the money, you can have a year long battery life uh, or, or more, but you know, that's the deal. So all I want to do, and I had it highlighted and of course I hit the damn mouse button and now it's all gone. So give me one <laughs> second. Here we go. As I wanted to talk talk a little bit about what they ended up finding out led to a positive release. And a positive release is basically the snakes that survived or appeared to survive and were successful in the landscape. And the I'm reading right from the abstract. The odds of a positive snake translocation outcome were highest with release of captive reared or juvenile snakes release of social groups together, delayed release, provision of environmental enrichment or social housing before release, or minimization of distance translocated. So if you're going to like reduce that sentence down, there's some key points here that I think tied right back to herpetoculture. Uh, one is 
Snakes that were caught from the wild and then relocated and released, that was not as successful as snakes that were reared in human care, hatched, and then released. So that's kind of interesting because what mm-hmm. that's saying is you can't necessarily if you got a development in southern in Dade County, Florida, you can't catch the indigos there and then bring them twenty miles north and release them in a wildlife management area. You know, you you can, uh, but that was not as successful as taking a naive snake to that area, an animal bred in human care, and then releasing it so that it can essentially head out on the landscape, learn that environment, create a territory, and, and, and make it its own. So that was cool. The other thing that's in here, and we are going to go down this path, and I'm going to say this. This is my disclaimer before I say this. I do not want this phrase or statement weaponized. I do not mm-hmm. want there to be shaming I do not I, I just want you to, to to hear it for what it what it is. And yes, I said that. Provision of environmental enrichment or social housing before release led to more success. In other words, snakes that were being maintained in a diverse environment where they had to I don't want to say think because that's probably too strong a word, even though that's what they're doing. Mm-hmm. But basically they had to base they had they had more environmental stimuli, which meant they had to use their brains a little bit more. They seem to do better than animals that were maintained under sterile conditions. And let's be real. What's that mean? Iraq and released out into the environment. So there's just there, there's something to be said uh, about that. The, the next sentence is kind of interesting. The odds of a positive outcome were lowest when snakes were released early in the active season. And so I, I, I read that sentence. I was like, well, that's interesting. What the hell's going on there? But I, I got to thinking about it. It. I think what's going on, I could be wrong. And, and for the record, this is what scientists do, guys. You know, you come up with a hypothesis, and then if you're wrong, you're wrong, and then you move on with your day, and that's it. Uh, but the odds of a positive outcome were lowest when snakes were released early in the, their active season. The only thing I can think about here is if you let something go when it comes right out of brumation, it's just on the landscape longer moving around before it has to go back down for brumation. And if you're out moving around more, the likelihood of something happening to you is higher, mm-hmm. um, which was was pretty interesting element of the paper. But I gave it like this was like a five to eight minute synopsis. This paper is 16 pages long. Mm-hmm. Um, I will absolutely be reading it because this is one of the areas that I want to kind of start doing some work in. Um, but, yeah, no, that was my paper. I thought it was cool, though, that one of the most successful groups were animals that were captive reared and released. Now I have to say this as a conservation biologist, I am not saying to release your snow glow corn snakes in Florida because you feel like they're going to make it. That's not what I'm, <laughs> that's not what I'm saying. Don't do that. <laughs> um, we, we certainly don't want to be introducing pathogens and there's so much that goes into translocation and release. In fact, I can say that one of the things we were throwing around as a potential idea for some episodes is bringing on some zoo people or some conservation biologists that actually are in charge of these efforts with animals like indigo snakes and have them kind of talk about the reality of what it is to do these projects. Cause it's not, I have six pairs of indigos. I breed them. I let the babies go. There's so much more that goes into it than that. Um, so people understand it. So it could very well be illegal in your state. To do that as well, turning yeah. loose. Oh yeah, totally illegal animals. Yeah, so yes. don't don't do that. Hundred percent illegal. Like if you, and then we'll get off the soapbox. 
if you were to take corn snakes here in West Virginia, where we have a very localized population of corn snakes, that is one of the most northern, northwestern populations of corn snakes in the country. They have abs- they absolutely have probably a set of alleles and everything through evolution, natural selection that make it so that they can survive there. If you took some normal corns that you produced and you released them into that gene pool, that is literally the worst thing you could possibly do <laughs> uh, because you are introducing a bunch of genes that then if they become successful and they get in that population, um, that, that could be a deleterious effect. Uh, now I know there's someone out there listening that goes, but it could also be advantageous and it's disingenuous for me to say that it's not, but that's a very low possibility. Whereas the idea of it being deleterious is extremely high possibility. So we just don't want to do that. But that's one of the reasons why I thought it'd be cool to bring somebody on who actually does this for a living. So, all right, cool. We are at the 30 minute mark for introduction, which is where we normally segue over. So you ready to do this? Let's do it. I'm excited for this guest. Yes, I am as well. So we're starting off the year with a wonderful person that we are happy to have. Miss Kayla Martin, how are you doing? Good. How are you? I'm doing well. Um, I forgot to say your your company is Infrared Reptiles, correct? Yes. Yes. So everybody find that right now. Like it so you can follow the wonderful things that Kayla does. So um, I'm curious about this one. We are going to ask the standard question as our, our our launching point. So snakes, you know, there's many people that would argue that we're the weirdos of the world, but we obviously don't feel that way. Um, but uh, or maybe we do. I don't know. Uh, but, um, why snakes? What was your start with herpetology? Working with these animals? Has it been around the, your whole life? Part of your life recently? It has been my whole life. Um, I got my first snake, of course, ball python, when I was Mm -hmm. six years old. um, Ah. And I have not been snakeless since. Oh, Um, nice. But I started working at a, like, a mom and pop pet pet shop uh, when I was Mm -hmm. 15. Like, before I could even get the work permit, like, I just started (laughs) volunteering. Um, But I I stuck there for a long time. Um. And they had reptiles in the store. And so it just kind of mm-hmm. flourished from there of like, oh, you keep reptiles. I have such and such I don't want anymore. Can you take it? And so I would just bring it home. And whatever <laughs> the store didn't want, I brought home. And thankfully, my parents didn't care what I had in my room. Nice. Um, nice. So I had everything. You name it, I had it. Um, mm-hmm. But... The snakes were, I mean, even before I was keeping captive bred snakes, it was, I've got, you know, old family videos and photos of me barely being able to walk, but I've got pockets full of gopher snakes and, and garter nice. snakes. And, <laughs> you know, so it was, it was kind of just built into me from a, from a young age. I love it. So yeah. you said you start, your first was a ball python, correct? Yes. And what kind of navigated you? Because it seems like anything I see you post is not a ball python. No. So what kind of navigated you away from from that and Um, where you're at now? It actually started with the oddballs. Um, So after, so I had, I had the ball python, didn't really. And then I I I dabbled a little bit in like the boas. 
Um, but I, then I went into a rat snake and then straight into Kings and Milks. Um, I mean, I got my first Honduran. Coincidentally, it was an annery, and I didn't even know what an annery was at the time. Um, I, it was 2008. Um, oh. And I, I I loved the the patterning. I mean, it's, it's just a banded snake, but it mm-hmm. made me happy. Um, right. And... And I, I kept, you know, some speckled kings and, and some, the Hondurans and whatnot. But I got my first oddball, um, which was the Madagascar giant hognose in nice, 2009. Nice. Um, got that one from Freight Fritas. And that was like when you really didn't see them available. Um, shortly after that, I got beak nose. Um, I've kind of discovered that I... I'm attracted to snakes with weird faces. Yes. Um, <laughs> so it's like, uh, uh, that's a trend in my collection. <laughs> um, and I had, I had a few Honda Hondurans mixed in with all my oddballs, um, leading up to 2017. And then I had like a big life change and kind of had to reevaluate what I was keeping, um, and I ended up selling everything except for my Hondurans. And nice. essentially between 2017 and this last, almost this last year, I only had Hondurans. I had a bunch of them, but I only had the Hondurans and that's what I was focusing on. Um, and then this last year moved and had more space. And, and so I was like, you know what? I want to keep, the oddballs that I had before and, mm-hmm. you know, I want to get back into that with more of a goal of captive breeding them. So now, now I'm kind of building the collection back up. Cool. What are some of the oddballs that you have now? Uh, I have the, currently I have um, a trio of the Madagascar giant hogs and a tree of the Madagascar blonde hogs Cognos. Um, I have uh, 2.2 of the Egyptian false cobras mm-hmm. and uh, two Ramphiophis, which is the beak nose. Yep. yep. Um, beak snakes. Yep. <clears throat> and then I have Madagascar cat eye, uh, Spilodes afaris. Uh, I have a trio of green bush rats. That's right. Uh, <laughs> what else do I have? Blue beauty, rat snakes, mm-hmm. uh, African house snakes, and file snakes. Think that's it. Wow, I, I don't remember what species it was that you and I first started chatting about. The green um, bush rats. Okay, that was probably. Yeah. I was about to say. I'm guessing it was probably those. Yeah. Um, so, so Kayla and I have chatted back and forth on you know Facebook periodically uh, for a while, and I remember. The it's it's funny sometimes you see a post in a group you know someone posts something you're like oh that's cool and what what it was for me was the um, false cobras yeah whenever you had posted the setup that you have for them I'm like oh those are cool I'm like, and then I glance up I'm like oh hey hey that's Kayla I didn't know she has those and then you know you start seeing more and more of uh, I remember the beak snake and things like that posting those pictures. And uh, was just like that. Those awesome that you know, such a 
a range there. I love whenever you see someone that has that many different of the oddball species because it's, you know, obviously the care for all these are going to be significantly different. Um, So to be able to, to keep such a, you know, eclectic um, group like that was really cool. So, um, you know, when we said that we were excited to have you on, obviously, you know, that that's an understatement with uh, some of that under your belt. I want to, I do want to talk about one oddball before we move on. The false cobras, not false water cobras, the false mm-hmm. cobras. Uh, you just recently put up the pictures of the the modified vision enclosure. Yeah. And you did that, and I don't think you know this, but that's when we had, like, I had two people say, get her on the show now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was, like, literally. So that enclosure, but my, that, that it had a, an impact. Uh it's an amazing idea because they're all cohabbed, correct? Yes. Yeah. So you've got four snakes and one. And the thing that I think is really cool about that, what I want you to talk a little bit about, is that is a classic gray six foot vision. Is that right? Yeah, it's a six by three. Yeah. So like, I I I, I distinctly remember seeing things in the past where people were kind of like, well, you can't really do full blown naturalistic you can do some naturalistic but you can't go like all out one of these because of its modularity and it's you know a a plastic enclosure and if you think that just give this enclosure a look because i i looked at it with my like i'm teaching herpetoculture class i and not to give you a big head but the pictures have already been downloaded and slapped in the powerpoint (laughs) so (laughs) because there's yeah so just kind of if you don't mind before we get to the honduran just talk about those snakes um, because it, you know, I I do false water cobras, and periodically we have people kind of uh, they'll reach out to me and be like, "Is this a false water cobra?" I'm like, "No," and don't get bit by that because that will actually hurt real bad. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I tr- I, um, I treat them as hots. Like I yes. do not handle them, and it it bugs me <laughs> that I see. <laughs> So many posts just because like this last year, there's been so many imports that have came in and people, people grab them up and they're, you know, they're posting pictures of them, holding them. I'm like, uh, okay. One, yeah. the animal's way too cold because mm-hmm. you're not you're holding it. it. Yeah, yeah. You're holding it. And they just, they're, or they're equating it to, you know, like a, a Western hog nose. Yeah. It's like, oh, it's rear famed. It's like, okay. It's a totally different ball game. You yeah. do not want to get bit by one of these. Yeah. Um, and if they are warm enough, they, they're super fast. Yes. Um, and so you see photos online of people holding them and it, I don't do it. I mean, I could, but I don't want to give it. So no. I don't, well, you're doing I it smart. or I leave yeah. them alone. And, and I don't, I just be told, I don't even, ha- I hardly handle my Hondurans because that I don't get enjoyment out of handling something. It's not a cuddly mm-hmm. pet. I like observing them mm-hmm. in their enclosure. I like taking photos of them. So it's not something that I feel the need to hold. Nice. Um, so so with, I, go for it. Um, I had them in a four by two um, because they're juveniles. They're not full grown. And they're just, they don't stop moving. And <laughs> you they also need, they need space, but they need hot basking temperatures and so in order to give them that temperature gradient you need a larger enclosure um and so and i can't build anything so i was like <laughs> i i need something in the six foot range and i i 
put a post up and found locally in my tiny little town in the middle of nowhere, um, <laughs> someone that had a bunch of visions in their garage for the last 10 years. And they're like, oh, we'll I'll make you a sweet deal. I'm like, well, it's not exactly what I wanted because I'm not attracted to gray plastic. <laughs> and I wanted to make it look good because I like taking photos and having a naturalistic look. Um, so I was like juggling between, okay, do I do what I think is pretty or do I do what they need? Mm -hmm. And I found a, a middle ground there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, bigger is better the, with them. For the pictures I saw, it looks like both worlds were being met. You know, so, they look great and it looks like they had everything they needed. Yeah. What substrate is in there? That's what I want to it know. It is so it's play sand and decomposed sand. granite. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the DJ. What is which, what is the decomposed granite? I don't know if I know what that is. Um, it's decomposed granite. <laughs> okay, there you go. Do you buy that at like Lowe's or Home Depot or? No, I get it at Rock Yards. So like the big places okay. that you can go buy by the yard by the truckload. Um, gotcha. And a gotcha, lot of gotcha, people gotcha. use it as pathways in their gardens and landscaping. Um. And it's got that orangey color to it mm -hmm. um, and a little bit bigger particle size than the traditional play sand. Yeah. Um, and essentially, I mean, it's probably not needed. I was more doing it for the aesthetic of it. Um, and, and do they burrow in there? They they will. They kind of okay. dig. They sweep the sand with yep. like their neck um, mm -hmm. to create dens. Um, and so I have cork barks and flats that kind of shove down into the sands and they hollowed out a den in there. Um, oh my God, but they're not, cool. nice. they're cool. not digging and making compact burrows that I've noticed. Um, and I experimented a little bit with that, with having it much deeper in one of the back cooler corners and was like, you know, think, okay, we'll give them a cooler, more humid nesting site. Um, to hopefully encourage breeding. Um, and because in, the, in, in their environment, I mean, yeah, it's hot and dry, but underground it's still going to have a higher humidity. Um, yeah. so that's what I was trying to recreate was the, the mini micro microclimates in as best as I could in an enclosure. Uh, well, it looks cool as hell. Yeah, so keep posting pictures of that thing. <laughs> Just, they're photogenic yeah. they are photogenic <laughs> yeah now, I, I thought about getting them but i know me and my wackadoodle ass will totally get nailed by one and i was like yeah no i'm just not going to do that so um I, i'll watch other people's experience with them because they do show up here my local show i go to to get crickets and feeders and things every uh, there's always the importer tables and I have a tendency to just kind of walk past those as fast as I can, but I, you know, periphery vision, I'll see those and it's an oddball that I haven't tackled yet. Um, and I, I usually bring my kid to that show and he is, it's funny cause he's an extension of my wife, which I need. And he's basically like, you don't need those. Let's move on. I'm like, thank you. 15 year old. Uh, <laughs> well, that species is so. actually, it's fairly new to me. Um, mm -hmm. I, yeah, you know, I've been out of high school for almost 20 years now, and then I signed up for some college courses about six months ago, and I was digging through old paperwork, you know, in storage, trying to find mm -hmm. my high school diploma, and came across, like, this crumpled paste paper from handwritten from high school of, like, oh, top five species I want to own someday, 
And <laughs> it had that on there. I'm like, oh, yeah. I, I totally That's forgot awesome. these existed. <laughs> oh, wow. And so then went down the rabbit hole from there. There you go. Makes sense. Yeah, your collection's very similar to mine because I've got all the oddballs at home, but then I've got a metric ton of king snakes. So I, I, I get it because you've got like the the ability to focus with the one group, which kind of scratches that itch. But then when you get a little bit bored and the ADD kicks in, you know you can go. I have mad hogs at home. Um, I'm growing up those. Uh, obviously, false water cobras, barons, racers, all those guys. So no, I get it. I, I completely understand the rationale behind the collection that you have. <laughs> so anywho. But, but it does bring a question. Why Hondurans? You know, yes. you, you had so many things that you did get to in, interact with. And so when you did kind of dwindle down at that one point to just having that one species for a while, why were Hondurans th- the direction you went? I like red and black snakes. Yeah, fair. <laughs> That's a fair <laughs> They look yeah. good. <laughs> uh, and, you know, I, I've i kept so many things, but I haven't. And I, I bred, you know, I had a clutch of carpet pythons and a, carp, a clutch of tegus and a clutch of speckled kings. But I never, I was always, I was always into the keeping side of things and not so much the breeding side until I got into the Hondurans. And that was kind of where I learned the most about the morphs and the dominant recessive genes. And it's exciting in the way of you never really know what you're going to, you know what genes there are, but even in the different genes, what they all look a little different when mm-hmm. they hatch out. And so it was like, it was like Christmas morning, they hatch and it's like, Ooh, what's, what are they going to look like? And uh, so that, that's kind of what got me hooked. They tend to be a good hardy species too. You know, yes. it's they they yes. tend to do well. You know, to your point, they're they're gorgeous, and it's even sometimes you're getting clutches like with Zach, where you didn't even know that didn't they know. carried other genes. <laughs> you know, they were het for other mm-hmm. things. So, yeah, I can completely see that. That makes sense. Yeah. Well, let's just let's jump into them then. So, uh, we. In honor of the Podfather and NPR, everybody that listens to us knows we have a tendency to kind of follow this formulaic way of doing these species-based ep- episodes. So we're going to go over husbandry, breeding. We're absolutely going to have a discussion about morphs. So if you're hearing this, stick to the end if you've wondered about that, because Kayla has all of them, based off what she said earlier when I was talking with her before we came on. But as far as, as husbandry is concerned, what's your strategy? Is this racks do you keep them in racks and vivs do you have you done so all the above so- I, I had when i first started out i had them all in the standard four by two by 18 pvc animal mm-hmm. plastics stacks and they didn't really use them they didn't use that space <laughs> And mm-hmm. they stayed hidden, and and then once my numbers got to a certain amount, I was like, okay, I'm going back to racks. So I do have all of my breeders; they're in the 41 quart racks, so the the long tubs. Gotcha. Um, and they do really, really well in the racks. Um, yeah. I I had a similar experience. I, I put mine in four by they weren't four by twos; they were four by fifteen inches tall, two two feet wide. Mm-hmm. And decked it out, and then they all stayed under their hides. 
Yeah, I never saw. They would, and I felt they, like it was a waste of space. They would cruise for like an hour after dark. I would see. I had a male in particular, uh, but it was just other than that hour they were under there. So they did go back to the racks as well. Yeah, <laughs> and they're naturally shy and flighty. Bingo. And That's exactly. So just, they just, especially in in terms of milk snakes, they're not. People think they're like a king snake. I'm like, no, they're no. flighty. Mm-hmm. They skydive out of the tubs when you open them and yeah. poop on you, and especially the babies. <laughs> the only milk snakes I've really come across that tend to not be as nervous as the you know typical stereotypical milk snake would be the the blacks. The black milks seem to be a little more calm and, and will utilize space when given. But uh, same as you two, my Hondurans go in racks. But I mean. Almost all Nelsons, Pueblans, Sinaloans, because they're just, they're so high strung. I think they, it keeps them calmer. They tend to feel safer in them. Well, most of the milks are semi-fossorial anyway. Like when they're out in the mm-hmm. wild, they're not a snake that's, there's always an exception. I'm certain there's been somebody that's seen a milk go up a tree. But as a general <laughs> rule, they're spending all their time on the ground level. They're using rodent burrows. They're they're down on the ground. So by all means, they could go in a viv, but they can also go in a rack. Um, so so within the rack, what's the setup look like? Because one of the things that I, I think that's been kind of interesting about our show is that we have definitely had some guests on that talk about the setups in, inside their rack tubs, which kind of makes me go, oh, wow, didn't realize all that's going on inside a tub. Yeah. Um, so what's what's it like in there for them? Um, so it's the, the 41 quart tubs, so the long tubs, and I use like a pine or an aspen bedding. Um, and then I have a, like the shoebox size tubs with a hole cut in the side, uh, with either sphagnum moss or cocoa chip, um, as a Mm -hmm. humid hide. And it also doubles as lay boxes too, during breeding season and a water dish. And sometimes I'll throw some leaf litter in there just to give them some sense and, you know, some mental stimulation and cereal boxes, macaroni boxes, anything from the kitchen. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. it, it, it gets shoved in there, you know, because they poop on their hides anyways. And it's, it's easy yeah. to just throw it away. But it gives them something to climb in and out of and something new to investigate. So even though they're they're in a tub, I try and... Spice it up a little bit, and it's, it's not like live plants and stuff in in the tub, yeah. but it's it's something. It's not a bear tub. They have hides. Gotcha. And so temperatures. This is something that when I was getting into Hondurans, I I, I was kind of like, all right. So there's two schools of thought here. One school was like 84, 85, 86, kind of warm, and then the other school was like almost like a black milk approach where it was cooler keep them with an ambient of around like 75 to 80 and then lower so what, what what's I'm your right in the middle you're um, right in the middle my, yeah <laughs> nice. i'm right in the middle my hot spots are like 83 max okay i notice them get really active or go to their water dish if it's like mm-hmm. once it gets above like 84 yeah okay that, that that's that's basically what i was doing i think i put my stuff at 82 um yeah, in the in the seems garage, to be kind of the magic spot, mm-hmm. you know, for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's, so, so what uh, is your? Are you feeding primarily mice? Are you doing rats and mice, chicks? So I mix it up. 
Um, primarily small rats, but I do adult mice um, and quail and chicks. Um, occasionally they'll get rabbits, like the <laughs> rabbit pinks, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> There's a, a lady in town that she'll give me some pinks. Um, but they eat anything. Yes. And I try and switch it up, and especially for the the females. Um, they get more food than the males do. And and with the price of rodents right now, uh, my males will get birds. They'll get chicks just because it's cheaper and they don't need the fat reserves that the, that the mm-hmm. females do. Right, right. Are you well, on a, like a once a week feeding or every few days? I don't. I gotta be honest. I don't have a set schedule. <laughs> <laughs> when I remember, so <laughs> yeah, um, it is during during the height of the breeding season when I'm really pounding food into those to those girls. Um, it's about every five to seven days. Mm-hmm. Uh, the males every two weeks or so, um, just because they're in a tub, they're not burning their calories as often. Um, and fat snakes don't have very good fertility, and in, in my mm-hmm my experience. Um, so I don't feed as often as, you know, the, Oh, once a week, every seven days, you know, Mm -hmm. unless they need it. Well, and I certainly think during the breeding season in the wild males probably are not eating once every seven days, their minds elsewhere, you know? Yeah. They don't have food just falling from the sky and hitting them Mm -hmm. in the nose. (laughs) Very, very cool. So then with, with the husbandry, can, let's just kind of go over. I've got a hatchling. I've got like a six to a, a six month to a year old juvie. And then I've got an adult. Like when they come out of the egg, one of the things that impressed me the most about these is if anybody listens to the show, you all know that I had a pain in the ass group of outer banks, king snakes, and speckled king snake. And I had all the oddball, not oddballs, that's the wrong word, but not necessarily the kings that most people keep. And they were a royal pain in the ass to get feeding and then they ultimately did and we moved on the hondurans were literally the easiest thing i like i put a pinky in and it was gone and that was it like <laughs> is is I that your hondurans eat before they even have their first shed oh my goodness i can beat that i had a friend had one eat while it's still partially in the egg holy that doesn't crap. surprise me <laughs> yeah they, they are voracious feeders yeah i i was they are. I, like i said i i, I put mine together Got babies. They were the most enjoyable snakes I had this past year because every every turn in the road, whatever the hell I was doing, it just worked. Like that's what I really liked about them. And they were just cool animals to begin with. So do you start them? I mean, they're kind of big at hatching for a Lampropeltis. They're not small. They uh, are, yeah. I've yeah. had a couple babies. Uh, my snows in particular, that pair gives me the most humongous babies i mean they hatch out of like 30 grams Um, oh my goodness yeah they're huge and they're angry so yeah well that was another thing i think our our, my my experience is limited to like 15 snakes total but one of the things i realized is that these things bite like crazy mine did and then like for a baby snake i don't want to give the impression it hurts i don't want to say like you know i've been bit by things and it hurts but there's definitely something going on there when those little guys, it's not like a corn snake or a getula king where it like gets you and you don't even realize it's happening. They'll it's, hang on. Yeah. they mm-hmm. And chew. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was yes. like, what the yeah. hell is going well, on? I think it's adorable. Because <laughs> uh-huh. it's like they think they're so scary. <laughs> mm-hmm. See, yeah, you're no, talking okay. about their bite. What gets me is I'm like, how does this little thing have so much poop in it? Yes. yes. Because they certainly uh-huh. want to smear you with that. <laughs> uh-huh. Oh, my goodness. All right. So then what what is your like small pink, medium pink, just a pink? Like what 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 do you just start with? Pink. Just a okay. standard. It doesn't have to be like the red hot pinks straight out of yeah. the mom um, just because they hatch bigger. Um, but I usually they hatch You know, they like to they pip their egg and then they sit there with their head out for a day or two. Um, and so it takes, you know, anywhere from one to three days for them all to leave the egg. And I'll put the whole clutch in the hatchling rack in one tub together. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they'll shed in about a week. And then I'll divvy them up. I'll sex them and put them all in their individual tubs just so I can monitor their their feeding and everything individually. Um, and babies, I feed more often. Um, okay. I am offering food every four to five days for, for a hatchling. All right. Same temperatures? And, yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I also, I incubate at 82 and the hatchling rack is also at 82. And so that's kind of my magical number. Mm-hmm. Oh, very, very cool. Yeah. So, so one it- of the things I'll do with babies as far as, you know, we're talking about feeding size, um, kind of prior to going up in size, I double the, the amount, meaning like if I'm eating, feeding a just normal size pinky, even though they're a heavy bodied snake, I'm still kind of concerned on going too large, too quick with them and encouraging a regurge. So instead of going to fuzzies, furries, and all that, it's two pinkies instead. And it seems to kind of ensure That's that cool. that doesn't uh, you know, go, go the wrong way, I guess. Yeah, no. Mine are, they just take them right off. Well, it's funny. Half of them will take them off the tongs now. And the other half, it's just I throw the pinky in, close the drawer, come back two hours later, and it's gone. Mm-hmm. Like I, I can't get over how easy these things have been. Yeah, yeah so. I drop feed for all the babies. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, and it's usually at night and I just, you know, put a pinky in and shut the tub and it's, it's gone. Yeah. Um, I've noticed that on some of the, the later season babies, like whether it's a late season or a double clutch, those are the ones that, you know, they're ha- I had babies that hatched last week and mm-hmm. they're, I anticipate they will be a little bit harder to start. Um, the later season babies tend to not feed as easily as the ones that hatch on time. Mm-hmm. Cool. I mean, not cool, but you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Well, then let's just jump into breeding. So um, I cooled. I, I just treated mine like they were Florida king snakes. Uh, but I, then I didn't even know if that was supposed to do that or not. <laughs> I just did it. Is there... If you're actually like doing this and you know what you're doing, uh, is, is there any strategy with winter cooling, fall cooling? Just I do not cool. You don't cool at all. No, no, no brumation cool at, all. at all. So okay. my <laughs> first year breeding, my first year breeding uh, was 2016 uh, okay. with the Hondurans, and I did cool because I was just following what everyone did. Yeah, following the um, recipe. Yeah, and mm-hmm. it's hard. I'm in California where we don't get super cold. But the inside of the house was too warm, and so I stuck them in the garage, but I still had them on a thermostat because the garage would have been too cold. Mm -hmm. Um, And 
I did not have good luck. They, a couple had ended up with respiratory infections. Um, and so then I started talking to other people and they're like, they don't need to be cold. And I think now the consensus is most people that are breeding Hondurans, they don't cool. Interesting. So what, what's and, your process? I, that I'm interested to hear this. I personally, I, I do still cool my Honduran. So I, I'm wanting to hear kind of how you go about it then. So right now the room that they're in is it's, they're in the laundry room, <laughs> but mm-hmm. they, and I have a very cold house now. Um, so I set the thermostat on there. It's at 77. So they get a little bit of a temperature drop, but they're still awake. They're still eating. Um, I slow down the food a little bit, but I, they're, they're not empty. They're, they're still eating. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I've, it, I, it has not changed my fertility cool. at all. When do you drop those temps? Uh, usually around Halloween. Okay. And do you do it just a little bit or you just drop straight to 77? Oh, I, just I know it's not a fall. To, yeah. We're talking like yeah, five, I just six drop degrees. Straight. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's not a big difference. Um, and, and like I said, I still feed throughout the winter. The only yeah. thing is that I will make it darker in the room. Oh, that was okay. be my next um, question. Is there any light changing? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I do. I do the light changing. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. And how I've, long do I've, you keep them down? I see it. Sorry. Let me rephrase. Not keeping them down because they're not down. They're awake. <laughs> they're eating. How long do we stay at 77? Um, I, well, it bounces around because the, the temperature of the house, you know, it, it goes up and down a little bit, but essentially I will turn the thermostat back up, um, around Valentine's day. So it's usually okay, the kind of classic yeah. cooling period. Yeah. Interesting. Well, that makes a lot of they're sense. They're late season breeders too. Yeah. So, I mean, they, and, and from when they, they wake, wake up, I say that in quotations cause they're not really sleeping, but yeah. Um, around February, I start pounding them with food and they'll go into shed and that's when I'll put them together and I won't see any action for probably another month or two because they're late season breeders. Um, yeah, but I cohab about half the year mm-hmm. and I've never, I won't, I won't say I've never seen it. From other people, you know, they say, oh, well, I've had things get eaten. They are lamp after all. But the milks are not like king snakes. No, no, not near where they, they're totally fine. In my experience and many others that I've talked to, <laughs> totally fine. Um, I know a lot of people that cohab year-round with the Hondurans. Um, and then I know people that say, don't ever do it, you know, but... <laughs> Take it with what you will, but I've never had any issues. Um, and their breeding period has been so sporadic for me in times. And maybe that's because I don't cool. So they don't have that set ovulation schedule yeah. to where I have found that if they're together, then I'm not missing that window. Yeah. yeah. Makes sense. That's my strategy. I, I, I had one male and the two females. And uh, I would keep the male in with one female for about three weeks. And then he'd go to the other female for three weeks. And then he'd go to the other female for three weeks. And like I said, I wasn't even, 
I, w- I felt like I was half-assing it, to be honest with you. <laughs> and then I got two clutches. Like, what the hell? Um, now, the thing that I wasn't prepared for, because I thought, oh, well, this didn't work. Because, you know, March and April hit, and I didn't see any kind of copulation or any, you know. And then I distinctly remember I got back from um, Minnesota, which was in May. And I was doing the feeding, and the, all the other guys were getting ready to lay eggs. And I opened up the Honduran tub, and there they were locked up. I was like, what the hell? So, like, May yeah, is kind this, of the, the magical month. Yes, this late season breeding thing was totally, I was not prepared for that. I, I I actually thought, like, are they broken? Like, what the hell's going on? And then I read uh, that Honduran book that's out. I forget the guy that wrote it, but uh, he mentioned that in there. I was like, oh, wow, I guess this is working. So, all right. But I do want to say something about not cooling them. I, that does make a lot of sense because black milk snakes and Honduran milk snakes, I've had the hardest time accepting dropping them down because they live in freaking Central America and granted, like you can go up the mountain in Central America, and and it it gets cooler up near the top and all that kind of stuff. But it's not West Virginia temperature. Like my garage can get cold, <laughs> yeah. so uh, I put them in the top tubs up near the ceiling, and that stays usually in the. I mean, it drops down maybe the lowest sixty degrees. Uh, so okay, you're, you're confirming. It's fun listening to you say this because now I'm kind of thinking about what I did. I was like, all right, well, then that's why that worked. Well, then that's why that worked. So, anyway, See, now I'm beans. thinking, you know, maybe I'm going to try this next season. Yeah. Because you know, mm-hmm. I've got them down <laughs> at the moment. Um, it, just to recap for our listeners, you know, just to make sure we, we're all, we heard it right. So usually around Halloween is when you drop your temperature about five or six degrees down to about 77. You feed throughout, pop them back up to your 82, 83 mark. Uh, roughly you said Valentine's day. Yes. And then it's after that first shed is when you throw them together and pretty much leave them together at that yes. point. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Nice. Very interesting. All right. I'll All right. usually put the male in the female's tub and then I do separate to feed. Um, and mm-hmm. that's just me taking the male out, sticking him in another back in his tub yeah. Feeding him and then he goes right back in there with the female. And I always, I like to move the males versus That's the what females. I, do. I just, I feel like it's, you know, the less stress on the females, the better. Mm-hmm. Do you, are you using a one-to-one kind of ratio or are you putting multiple females to a male? It's, and if so, how do you determine that cycle? It's mostly one-to-one. Um, there is a couple pairings that I have. The, the male gets two ladies. Um, and they're all in one tub. So, oh, this, gotcha. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> My goodness. Nice. That's all how, right. That's how I do the prosena with the, the green bush rat snake. Same thing where uh, we're running trios together. So interesting. Interesting. Nice. Good so, stuff, Kayla. When you are, I just forgot the question. When you're feeding the, the, the neonates, yes, we're kind of going back to babies now. I'm sorry about that, but uh, what is a normal growth rate? This is something that I've been trying to figure out. Um, So like in your experience, you have a hold back, you fed it well, it's eating well. It's not, we're not power feeding for growth. I'm not saying that, but like at a year after it's hatched, what's a normal sized yearling going to be? And at what age do you breed them? It is 
So the magical rule for breeding is three and three. Three years, 300 grams. Um, I like to wait until four years or 400 grams. Um, I've noticed that, I, I mean, sometimes I'll have a five, 600 gram two-year-old, <laughs> but it's like once they have that first clutch, that growth rate just stops. It, it dramatically slows down. So I want them to get as big as they can before being bred. Okay. Um, and I, I, I keep a lot of different lineages and bloodlines. Um, and some of those I have noticed a trend of they don't grow very fast and they don't get very big. And it could be due to just wherever they originated from their smaller animals mm-hmm. um, or at a smaller gene pool. Um, Cause I've heard other people with the same lineages yeah. having the same issue um, of them just not getting as to their, you know, that textbook Honduran size. Um, and I've had other lineages grow super, super fast and then top at at a certain gram. And then that, that's it. So I think a lot of, a lot of the size has to do with the, the genetics and not that's so cool. much just the feeding aspect of it. Okay, cool. That, well, uh, you know, that makes does that sense. answer your I'm question. Thinking, <laughs> yeah. And you've got me thinking about what I've got back there too. And it, my snows tend to be smaller than like my hypotangerines. They, and now that I think about it, typically that's all of them that I've had. It's, and not that the snows are small by any means, but the hypotangerines always seem to get bigger. The snows hatch bigger. Hypotangerines end up becoming bigger at least in the collection that I've got. It makes me wonder because there's really not that many morphs in mm-hmm. the Hondurans. There's just kind of the basics of, you know, the albino, the anery, the you know, mm-hmm. whatnot. But the hypo is the most common of the morphs. And so they're going to have a bigger gene pool mm-hmm. and, it makes me wonder if the the line breeding that went involved that was involved in creating these morphs, if that triggered them to be smaller. I, I could totally see that triggering them to be smaller. Yeah, you see in a lot of animals outside of like we're now going to like just basic evolution. <clears throat> um, when you have a limited amount of genes to work with, you get the result of what those genes produce. So if it just so happened that the animals were small that made the hypos, then the genetic disposition for size is going to be small because that's what the genes are allocating for. So um, that's why a lot of times you see on like islands, you get gigantism or you get dwarfism, but you oftentimes don't get like the middle ground because you just so happen to be on an island and being a dwarf is more advantageous and there's fewer animals getting out there. And that's the thing that manifests itself and takes off. So in a captive population, because that's essentially all these morphs are is a captive population. It just works and that's the way it is. And if we want a hypo, you got a smaller snake. I don't know if you do or don't, <laughs> or if you want to snow, you got a bigger snake from what it sounds like. So, yeah, but we've, we've danced around these morphs. I think it's time that we do our swan dive in there. So anything else you want to mention that we may not have hit on directly with husbandry based off your practice? Uh, maybe not so much husbandry, but their temperament. 
Okay, um, go for that. They babies are super flighty. Um, they poop on you. They'll bite you when 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 you're holding them. Like if you restrict them, uh, but for sure you're gonna get pooped on. Uh, and uh, super flighty escape artists. Absolutely, <laughs> I. I don't even want to say how many I have had get out. <laughs> and you swear they cannot get out of this tub. There's no way. And then they're gone. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> I always, anyone that buys a snake from me, I'm like, what are you putting into? Is it a glass tank? Does it have a screen lid? Like yeah. mm-hmm. make check your, any holes where the cords go through, they will find, they'll find a way to get out. Um, I think that's a lamper peltus trait right there. Yep. Yes. Yeah. yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. <laughs> They're the ninjas. Um, <laughs> you know, the snake. Yeah. Bird. And, and I, I vend a lot of shows also. I do, I sell online, but I do vend a lot of shows. And I started my love of snakes as a kid, and I've got kids. And so it's like, of course, I want to inspire the younger generation to get into keeping. Um, but I do have a lot of customers that come to me. I'm like, oh, I want to get my eight-year-old their first snake. And your Hondurans are so pretty because they everyone loves the bright colors. And I absolutely warn them, like, are, can they handle a fast, flighty snake that's going to jump out of their enclosure, that's going to try their best to get away from you, that's going to poop on you, that's yeah. going to bite you? and I was like, if you can deal with that for the first year or two, then you'll exactly be fine. Exactly what I tell you. Yeah. Because yep. they calm down mm-hmm. with age. Yeah. Um, I mean, they're never going to be like a ball python that's going to sit in your lap and not move. No. But they do calm down with age. And it's like, you just got to get through that first year to two years once they get some size. And they're better. <laughs> so Yeah. One final thing on the babies before we move to morphs, uh, just because we didn't hit on it. If you have any stubborn feeders, anything like that yeah. at the beginning, do you have any tricks or tips for uh, for anybody listening? Boiled pinks. It's a good one, isn't it? It is. <laughs> That's probably my favorite trick when it comes to colubrids. Boiled yep. pinks. You're on it. Boiled. <laughs> you know, I, I, have, I have one snow right now who is, I think it's just, it's a failure to thrive. Mm -hmm. Um, so I don't even know if this thing's going to make it, but it won't eat at all. Um, and I recently, which I feel like I'm so behind in the ball game of knowing this. I just found out about the washed pinks (laughs) and, and so I'm trying that so far it's not working, but I think it's just this individual snake. That's just like, I don't want to live. Um, yeah, but, but yeah, it's always been boiled. You said you feed quail too. Try to put a little quail scent on there. That seems to be something magical that's been working for us. Oh, it's many different crack. species. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. So give that a go. Yep, yep. Good stuff. Well, are, are we ready for morphs? We're ready for morphs. All right. So I, I'm gonna I'm I, I'm gonna start it, and then Clint can take off from there because I want to ask some questions, prove to the world that I am incredibly ignorant to this stuff. <laughs> so it. A normal Honduran. So when I, I got it, like, I, I will fully admit, I literally went on the morph market to when I got my trio. I knew what I wanted, but I can't, for the life of me, learn what these things are. I, I can rattle off 
hundreds of animals out in the wild. I cannot remember what the hell a hypo is, what a snow is, what a, like, it just doesn't stick. And so I looked and was like, pretty, bye. That's literally what I did. Like, I didn't know what, what it was. And then the pretty buy led to, like, all these different colors that hatched out of, of my, my group. But I realized after I tried to learn when I had eggs, I didn't even know what a damn normal t- Honduran looked like. Like, if I was in the field in Honduras and I found a Honduran, I would not – I would be like, oh, it's tricolor milk snake. Which one is it? I wouldn't really – so just starting off with normal, can we just talk a little bit about what, like – the base model, what what nature made, the wild what, what that type. looks like, the wild yeah, so type. People refer to that as the wild type, um, and that is my favorite. Is oh. I I like the wild types because it's red and black, um, okay. or or it's the tricolor. So the wild types come yeah. in uh, a tricolor or the tangerine. We're going to talk um, about tangerine in a second. Yeah, and um, which a lot of people confuse what a tangerine actually is. So I'll, I'll touch mm-hmm. on that. Um, but the the wild type is going to be they're dark. They're muddy is a word that some mm-hmm. people use to refer to them as. Um, but they're darker, and the they are. The, the red and black or the tricolor um, and tricolor comes in. It can be a peachy color. It can be a yellow, um, but dirty white kind of. Yeah. Yeah. But there's usually a little of the black tipping on the wild mm-hmm. type animals, okay. um, which gives them the darker look. And you actually, those you don't see too often. Yeah. Like you'll be hard pressed to ever find those at a show. Yeah. It's just not common. Yeah. Well, I, I did. Most, most of the, captive ones now they have they almost always have a hypo gene in there Mm -hmm. somewhere and the hypo really cleans them up it takes away that black tipping it lightens them um and even even if something's not labeled hypo i can look at and be like that's a head hypo interesting so then so that's the base model And, and they're actually somewhat rare I think that's fair to say. But but the one word that kept popping up that took me a while to grasp, what the hell is this? And then I was overcomplicating it. I'll fully admit that. So with Hondos, you see Hondurans, you see Tangerine. Tangerine, Tangerine, this. Hypo Tangerine, this, blah, blah, blah. What the hell is Tangerine? And why is it such an important word? Because it's rampant throughout Honduran milk snakes. People have stuck this tangerine name on pretty much anything that has that orange Mm -hmm. banding and the the triad band, the orange band. They're like, oh, tangerine, because tangerines are are that orange color. But a true tangerine is actually going to be a bicolor as it ages because they, they, they darken as they age. And so a true tangerine is that the red and on the snake is going to basically be the same color as, as the color in the inside of that, that triad band. Okay. Um, and it may be orange as a baby, but as that snake's age, as the snake ages, it's going to be the bicolor where it's going to be a red coloration. Um, and if it is, if that inner band color is anything less than that deep orange 
it's gonna it's a tricolor. Gotcha. Yeah. Cool. Okay, so so meaning that there's gonna be three colors in there ultimately as tricolor. Yes, if it, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and tricolors range between being the like that pale yellow, almost a white, to where it can it can be dark to where it's like peachy or an apricot color, but it's still a tricolor. If it's not gotcha. orange or a bicolor, it's still a tricolor. Interesting. So, so then we have the albino, which when I looked at hold the on, albino, hold on one second before go we go to albino in try. Um, I'm sorry, with tangerine, just for our listeners, this is a this is a line bred mutation. Yes, thank you. Is this a recessive trait? Tangerines are basically a wild type. Yeah, they're just considered a normal. Really? Mm-hmm. Yes. Huh. And so the more vivid orange is more from line breeding for that vivid orange. Yes. Interesting. In the tangents. Yeah. Okay. So then. All right. I got it. <laughs> so then. Because the, um, the next ones we're about to move into are a little are more. Legit, yeah. Where you'll under, you know, you'll know it. So I wanted to make sure we pointed this one out as I knew it was going to be different. Mm-hmm. So. So <laughs> we have albino. Then we have. Hypo, and then we have the anneries. So there's there's three well, things there, which I'm back. assuming are recessives. Yes. But like, just talk about those in whatever order and whatever way you want. Okay, so <laughs> hypo, um, hypo is uh-huh. most common, um, and there's such a varying degree of hypo. Um, the hypo is the reduced black on the animal. Yes. And sometimes you can hardly tell. It's just, it's ever so slightly less black. But if it's a, if it doesn't have the black tipping on all the scales, then you can kind of, that's an indicator. Okay. This, this is a hypo. It's just not a very light hypo. Um, And there's also extreme hypo, which is a line uh, that originated from Mike Falcon. And that's where the banding is very, very light. It's some almost have like an olive green to them. And then some have like that lavender purple Yeah, just because it's so light. Um, but they have red eyes um, almost like, like, like the albino. Um, they're just, they have so, such a reduced pigment that they, that it also affects their eyes. And for whatever reason, the extreme hypos, the best looking ones, they're always male. Um, anyone that works with the extreme hypos, they'll be like, I hash shot this amazing extreme, but it's a male. Mm-hmm. And But that's line, that's a line bread trait. And even if you put two extreme hypo parents together, you're not going to get 100% extreme, visual extreme babies. You'll get ones that are amazing, super light, extreme hypos. And then you'll also get regular hypos that then you can label extreme line. Or some people stick the ultralight hypo term. I've seen that. that. Yeah. But it's, yeah. So that's, that's not necessarily, you know, you can't really say, oh, it's het for extreme hypo. It's het for hypo, but it's a line bread trait. 
Gotcha. So extreme hypo, ultra hypo, and hypo, there's not really a genetic marker that's differentiating those three. It's just looking at the snake when it comes out of the egg and then applying that kind of qualitative statement to it. Correct. Okay. See, this is where my black-white scientist brain goes ape with these morphs because I'm like, you can't have three terms for the same thing genetically. Yes, but like... (laughs) Look at it more as a marketing term. See, I can't think that way. (laughs) It is, but there's a difference between extreme hypos. You can have a really nice looking, super light, and I say super Mm -hmm. light, not as a name, but just a very light hypo. But just because it's a light hypo doesn't make it an extreme. That's that's a line. Mm -hmm. So you kind of have to know what it where it came from to be able to call it an extreme. Otherwise, okay. I'm getting an education, guys. are going to yell at you. <laughs> okay, yeah. Zach. T- Okatee? Yeah. Abbott's Okatee. Yep. Gotcha. It's just extreme. He didn't use his name for it. Mm-hmm. He used the word extreme instead. So that's kind of more gotcha. of a way to think about gotcha, it. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. All right. We're, we're, we're learning. All right, then. I guess there's, there's also mega hypo, but I oh, won't get dear. into that because I'm not <laughs> as familiar as it. Okay. Four freaking hypos. And we don't want Zach to pass out. So. Oh, yeah, no. <laughs> uh, I, my face says you can't see it. It's kind of turning red because blood pressure is <laughs> rising. Uh, <laughs> Go start twitching in a minute. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, I, uh, albino and Annery, I guess go to albino. Is there anything wackadoodle with albino? Or is it just um, an albino? Albinos are awesome. So albinos yeah. are awesome because, yeah. again, you, it's an albino, but there's such a variety of albinos. There's the tangerine albinos. There's okay. tricolor albinos. But in among both of those, their looks are yeah. totally different. Um, some of the, the – I love albino tricolors over the tangerine, cool. which is – Usually, most people prefer the other way around. Um, they <laughs> prefer the tangerine albinos. I like the tricolors. Um, and I like the high white tricolors. Um, but they're with the albinos, there's there's like the white banding. There's like crisp, clean white. And then there's ones that have more of the yellow pigment. And then there's these orange animals. And then there's the red animals. And I, like the I love the reds. <laughs> yep. Red and white yes. is where it's at for me. <laughs> and yeah. it's funny because I like the red and black. And so it's like, you know, it's the albino form of what I prefer. Mm-hmm. Very cool. And, it, and that's one of the things that are cool, too, about, you know, that the albino morph, even the, the tangerines. So with Hondurans, you can't you can't just have an al, you know, a pair of albino Hondurans and think you have that covered, so to speak. You know, putting that up in quotes, because as as Kayla's telling, there, there's so many different shades to this. So you can have your pair of red albinos, your pair of tangerine albinos, your tricolor albinos. But even in your reds, you have your deep reds, you have your light reds, in your oranges, yeah. same thing. So it's like, mm-hmm. I mean, you you so much you can do with just that one gene and have so many different varieties of it. You know, it, it's really are there yeah, any lines? I- Yes. Of albinos? Okay. Um, uh, well, yes. Or is it just you kind of go nuts with the albinos and hope for the best? Um, there's more of vanishing pattern and okay. the aberrant lines, which I'll touch on those. Um, but with the 
Norm Dam. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with that name. Yes. Um, but That's her, who's, I got my first black milk from Norm. He has some amazing albinos. Um, and I picked up a trio of, of Norm Dam albinos that throw sock heads. Um, and so I'm really looking forward to, see, to putting those together this upcoming season. Wow. So define a sockhead. I, I think Chad defined this. Yes. Just in case the there's somebody's thing. like, what the heck is that? Yeah. Um, <laughs> same thing as you see in the, the, it's more prevalent in the Pueblins. Um, it's, it's not very common in the Hondurans. Um, but that's, I'm trying to, and I'm trying to work with that and, and get more sock heads out there. Um, and that's just where that band that's like right at the base of their head is elongated. So the color of their head goes further down the body. Gotcha. Okay. All right. I'm, I'm learning more tonight than maybe in any other podcast we've ever done. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. So then let's, let's do, I think it, it is it the anneries and the ghosts that are similar, but not. Yes. They, yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah and there's, there's snows and pearls that are similar, too. Okay, so okay. with Annery, that's lacking red, um, and that's usually a gray animal. Um, what makes ghost different is ghost is an hypoannery. So it has both genes. So it's more, it has more white to it. It, okay. it cleans up the animal and lightens them because that's what the hypo does is it lightens yes. it. Um, I I love ghosts. Um, Anneries don't ghosts. really do it for me, but <laughs> a hatchling ghost is one of the prettiest babies you're going to have yes. come out yes. of the yeah. egg. I, I yeah. mean, the pink on this—they're pink. It, yeah, it, they yes, are pink. They, they are beautiful. beautiful. Yeah, I, I that's have. What a, I think I made. I have been working with vanishing pattern ghosts that's... for for a number of years, and they are pink or white, white. Like there's there's no gray to them. They're mm -hmm. they're white. And yep. vanishing pattern basically means that you're losing, like it's kind of blurring with the it's, white and the pink so or no? There's, so the vanishing pattern is a where the black banding, like the, yes. the black of an animal, so the triad band, that is diminished. Um, not that it disappears as the snake grows because their pattern doesn't change. Although when the animal grows and gets more girthy than... The, sat, the the panning or the saddles appear smaller um, just because of the way the body shape is changing. But it's just that those black bands don't wrap all the way around the body. And they could be complete, almost a patternless animal where it's just like dots down the back, or it could be almost a normal banded. It's there, There's a varying degree of vanishing pattern. Gotcha. And then the difference between a like traditional ghost and an annery is that the annery has the black flecking. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. The black okay. tipping. Black uh, tipping. And then the black, the black tipping is, is kind of goes away with, with the hypogene. The okay. hypogene really cleans up the animal. Um, and the ghosts are a hypo annery. Um, and so that's why they look cleaner. Gotcha. As hatchlings, they can look more similar than what they look as adults. Um, anneries don't necessarily hatch out with all the, the, the kind of black tipping. It fills in as they get older. Get bigger. So That's it's with, kinda, with all of them. The, yeah, the tipping exactly. Will be mm -hmm. more prominent as they age. 
Yep. So, you know, if you are breeding and you've got, let's say you're breeding an anery het hypo to a ghost, so you're going to have half and half, know that some of your anneries may trick you, you know, to <laughs> to an untrained eye. You may think you have a ghost, but you don't. Um, now, when you've got them side by side, you can usually tell. Yeah, you but can if tell. You, yeah, but if you just had, you know, if you've got an animal sitting on a table that someone who doesn't breed Hondurans has it on their table and it's listed as a ghost and you're not, you don't have the trained eye. It might be an annery that you don't realize is just an annery until three to six months down the road when it starts to develop that tipping and darkening. So, okay. Um, and then snow. Yep. Uh, snow is albino and annery gene combo. So it's both of those. Um, and they present as like a white yellow animal mm-hmm. um, and with maybe a touch of pink to them. Um, yeah. But yeah, so they, they won't have any of the, because of the albino, they won't have any of the black pigment on them at all. So like the ghosts, they're two gene combo. Okay. Hey, do you find that yours typically hatch out? with more of the white pink and turn to the white yellow with age? So I only have one pair of snows and I have been working with that same pair for six or seven years. And my female is super high contrast. Like she's very yellow and very pink and you can see her banding. Um, she's just, she's a spectacular snow. Um, and my male is, yellowish and not so pink um and you he almost looks patternless because he's just so dull um but i can tell when they hatch which ones are going to look like dad and which ones are going to look like mom because you can see the pattern on them see the degree of the pinkness interesting okay so we kind of gone through the 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 list that I had, but I got one more, which I saw a bunch of, and it, this one drove me crazy. The Deadpool. Well, okay. So you're talking about lineages. Yes. Um, We're getting away from. There's, there's more morphs. (laughs) Oh my goodness. All right. We'll we'll put the Deadpool on the table. We're going to talk about it soon, peeps, (laughs) but (laughs) what are the other morphs? (laughs) Um, Okay. So there's Pearl. Okay. And pearl is a is the three gene combo where it's albino, anery, and hypo all together. Oh my god! They look <laughs> the exact same as a snow. So, because you can't visually see that hypo gene, so if something is li- if you see it on Morph Market or some and it's labeled a pearl, you have to the the breeder has to be able to prove to you that this is the three genes because it's going to look the same um, as, as a two gene as, as a snow. Um, gotcha. And that's the same thing with high bino, the label little high bino, but it visually looks the same because you can't see the hypo in an albino. Um, so, so, so a, a high bino is a hypo albino. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. So between the high bino and the pearls, the breeder or the seller has, they need to be able to prove that it has this hidden gene in order, oh. this non-visual gene 
gotcha. in order to label it that. Okay. So then you're buying those with the, with the multi-genes to then breed to another het to basically get like the most yeah. morphs out of one clutch. Is that the, the idea there? Correct. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. You have more options. Okay. That makes sense. Any other morphs? No. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> well, the thing I like about these guys is that there's enough diversity here where it feels like you're doing something, but it's not like the freaking hognose snakes where I tried over winter break to learn those. And after eight hours, I felt really bad about myself. <laughs> all the different Jesus. Lord, They're easy to follow. It's not yeah, too this is not difficult. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So then let's, if you don't mind, let's go to the line. I, I need to know what the hell this Deadpool thing is. Okay. So, <laughs> um, or Saunders aberrant, line? Sanders. Sanders. Um, okay. So the aberrant or aberrant, I don't know how you pronounce it. Um, yeah. Aberrant. But aberrant. Okay. So mm-hmm. there is a few select bloodlines of that. Uh, Deadpool, which is the Bailey line. Deadpool was a nickname that popped up within the last five or so years um, from one person's specific collection. He equated the black and red coloring to look like yeah. Deadpool. And so he stuck this name on it. Um, but that's not the original name. That okay. is the, ba- the original name is Bailey line. Um, Excellent. And then there is Sanders. Uh, originated from Wayne Sanders, and then he sold his entire collection to Scott Thompson. Uh, Scott Thompson is kind of, he's legendary. He's awesome. He's He's a good friend of mine. Um, He has some amazing animals. Um, I got all of my Sanders from him. And uh, he, so there's Sanders line, Aberrant, Bailey line, a.k.a. Deadpool, and crazy line. And okay. that's the main three aberrant lineages. Um, and I don't have Bailey, but I have Sanders and crazy line. And, and what, what, what is special about these lines? Uh, well, crazy line looks completely different from the other two. Um, and I think those are awesome. They they are more of like a peachy tricolor. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have a lot of the aberrant uh, patterning to them. I have noticed that they tend, they're, when we were talking about certain uh, lineages staying smaller, in my experience, the crazy lines have stayed smaller. Um, whereas the Sanders line are monstrous that are huge um, <laughs> but they're also crazy flighty like it's just funny how uh little tendencies of temperament uh mm-hmm. even though they're all the same species it's just it's it definitely is somehow related to the lineage um just Very because cool. i i've got many sanders line and they're all psycho <laughs> And those are animals that when they grow up, they're basically black and red. Is that the idea or no? Yes, that's the traditional. Okay. And 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 with the lineages of the the aberrant or aberrant, it's 
not it's not a recessive dominant gene. So you can put two aberrant animals together, but that doesn't mean that all your babies are going to have visual aberrants. Um, And you can put two non-visuals together and get amazing, you know, little spiral babies. And so it's, you know, people will say, oh, het aberrant. And it's like, well, technically it's not, Mm -hmm. you know, it can't be het. It's a line bred trait. And if Get you it. put, yeah, and if you, you put two of the same lines together, you're increasing your odds, but that's not necessarily a promise that you're going to produce aberrant babies. Gotcha. And one year you might, you know, get amazing babies, and then the next year they're all pretty normal looking. I'll tell you something I found um, about aberrant babies. Um, so this was, gosh, had to be almost 20 years ago, uh, 18 to 20 years ago, had some normal, I, I would, they were actually, they were tangerine, but I mean, that was a pretty much normal even back then. Um, had a pair of adults and I, I was new to Hondurans, hadn't kept them before and had asked, uh, you know, a friend what he had incubated his at. And actually, I, if I remember right, I got this pair from him. And so this is what he would incubate the eggs at. And he would incubate the eggs with the ball python eggs. So you're looking at 88 to 90 degrees. And we would get some of the craziest aberrant, aberrant, forgive me, pattern (laughs) on these animals. Um, And now I would also occasionally get kinks as well. And, you know, at the time I didn't know no better. You know, as far as what temp I was incubating them at, um, when I did learn, oh, I probably need to lower the temps on these. I started incubating them at the eighty eighty two mark. Didn't have any kinks, but had normal pattern babies as well. From the same so pairing. Just, same pairing. Oh, yeah. So well, just no, something I thought. Was, <laughs> yeah, it, it was something I thought was very interesting that because once I again once I went to the eighty eighty two, never got another. You know, anything other than a normal pattern baby after that. And so yeah. it was something in that incubation temp that messed with that patterning quite a bit. That's weird. That's, that's really interesting. Yeah, it was. It was, it was I feel a sad experience coming on. <laughs> you know, and I had forgotten all about it until this conversation just now because I, you know, moved from them and, and, you know, now breeding Hondurans and I've never even thought about bumping the temp up again, you know, but uh, mm. something neat. So any any more lines worthy of note, or is that? Uh, there is other lines out there. Um, there's the mega lines, part of the hypo. Um, mm-hmm. There's, you know, falcon line has really great vanishing pattern ghosts. Um, but as far as like the main the main lines that you hear about are the Bailey, the Sanders and the crazy line. And there's a couple in the, in Europe too, but I'm not as familiar as them. There's um, like, there's a hypo tricolor line. That's a really clean light, like pale yellow, um, the Jap Coogee. Um, mm-hmm. I actually, I have a pair of those. Um, that's a European hypo tricolor line. Interesting. Um, but there's, there's really not that many. 
which no, it I makes like it, it easier to keep track of. I prefer it like that. Mm-hmm. All righty. Well, thanks for doing that. I don't think we've ever put anybody. I don't really feel like we put you on the spot, but we did kind of put you on the spot <laughs> with going over all the different morphs. You did an absolutely amazing job with that. So thank you. Thank um, you. We're, we're nearing the end. Uh, and in honor of Matt, who came up with this question many moons ago, and I'm really curious to hear your, your answer because you're in the thick of it with herpeticulture. You've been doing this a while, like since you were six. So the future of herpeticulture, is it bright? Is it not bright? Is it what you make of it? What do you think's the good, the bad, the ugly? Just kind of spout out your thoughts. You've listened to our show, so you kind of know how this question rolls. I think it's it ebbs and flows. It slows down and then picks right back up and slows down or picks right back up. Um, and in, in terms of the Hondurans, you know, when I first started this, this was almost 10 years ago, my babies were selling for 60 bucks a pop. And I was super <laughs> happy with that. And two years after that, it was a okay, hundred, 150. And I had weightless. I had babies that were sold before they were hatched mm-hmm. and, and, you know, I couldn't produce enough of them. And then around COVID hit. And, and of course that's when I slowed down a little bit too. Um, and, and I, maybe it was just me. Cause I did, I, I went through a divorce and I, I took kind of a backseat of, of things online for a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, Everyone else was like, oh, well, during COVID, everyone was stuck in their house and, you know, the market just boomed. And I'm like, wow, I missed it. <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, but now the prices have went up, but you go on Morph Market and there's so many out there. There's an mm-hmm. oversupply. Um, and so, and especially when everyone was seeing the prices tick up. They bought a bunch and now those I've raised up and now they're breeding them. And now no one's selling as, as quickly as they were four or five years ago because there's more supply. Um, but for me in my, my terms of, I have seen it over the last year that I've really put, put more of what I produce out there. Um, again, that it's picking up. It's it's picking back up from what it was for me a couple years ago, um, and so I don't I don't see it slowing down. At least not with the colubrids. Um, mm-hmm. I think some other species may may stall out a little bit, uh, but I I think the colubrids have. It's like back in the '90s where everyone wanted colubrids, and then yeah. Then it, then it turned into the ball pythons, and now colubrids are kind of making their comeback a little bit. Well, and I'll uh, tell you that Hondurans are definitely a species that, in my opinion, there will always be a market for. And it's because simply look at them. Yeah, they're cool. They're they, beautiful, <laughs> but they have good size to them. Yeah, and that's I, what a mm-hmm. lot of people enjoy is that they're, they're a heavy-bodied, bigger milk snake. Well, to me, they, they pass what I would call the ignorance test. And I don't mean that as an insult. It's for someone who is ignorant to snakes that does not know anything about them and is just walking past a table that's full of them. 
Hondurans will always catch the eye because of how pretty they are. When you see the tangerines, when you see the albinos, when you see the ghost, they are eye-catching. They are usually one of the prettiest snakes on a table. There will always be a market for a snake that looks like that because there's always new people to the hobby that are going to gravitate towards that easy. visual appealing. Yes, absolutely. They're easy. They're, not, absolutely. they're easy. They're not demanding. Um, I think and, there's something to be said about that, though. We, we you know, I, I keep some pretty challenging animals, and I can flat out tell you the there are weeks of my life where the idea of freaking getting these whatever the hell's to eat is daunting to me. But then I'm like, but the Hondurans are going to eat. Mm-hmm. Uh, as <laughs> the navels, like having success with them makes it work. It builds your confidence to then work with something that might be a little bit more challenging. I don't know. Yeah. And it's like my Hondurans, I have, you know, 30 to 40 of them in my house and they will always be my, my primary focus and my first love when it comes to breeding. Um, but they're so easy to breed too. And it's like, I kind of, <laughs> I don't want to say I got burnt out cause I didn't get burnt out, but I just wanted more of a challenge yeah. on, on some of the other species and which is, that's why I started getting into the Madagascar hog noses and the beak nose and the false cobras. I'm like, okay, I want a challenge. Yes. Because I'm used to something that I don't even have to really try and they breed. <laughs> well, very, very cool. Well, thank you very much for coming on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, thank you for having me. No worries. Uh, we'll probably have you back on when you inevitably get those false corals or cobras to make little false cobras. Uh, fingers <laughs> crossed. Yes. <I'm> yes. <laughs> we'll be rooting for you. Yeah. Thank you. We're on Team Kayla. So if people want to find you, they're interested in Hondurans, they want to look at your naturalistic setups that you have, um, where do they go Facebook. for that to go down? Uh, Facebook? Facebook. Yeah. Okay. And I also am on Marf Market. I'm not on Instagram. I was once upon a time and deleted it. And now I'm like, oh, why did I do that? But, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, but and it's infrared? Reptile? Infrared reptiles. Yes. All right. Very cool. So. Very cool. And any final thoughts you want to throw out there? No. All right, sweet. We got it all done. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So, um, it, you know, I'm Zach. If you want to find me, Zach Loafman on Facebook, Dr. Crawdad mm-hmm. on Instagram, um, grad students, undergrads, anybody that wants to work in college with the animals. Uh, we are one of the things I spent all day to do, all day today doing was walking all over this building, trying to figure out what the next phase of everything was going to be. And, um, this is going to be a really, really cool year. Uh, and it's all, I'm stuck in herpetoculture up to my waist every damn day I'm here, which is good. Uh, and you can be a part of that. So, yeah, that's me. Um, it, another thing I want to say, uh, if you like the podcast and you're on social media, please go to the Instagram page. Hold off on the Facebook page for a little bit like we talked about. Gentle reminder on that one. But um, we will. we always put up the show with a link on Spotify so you can go right to it from your Instagram feed or Facebook feed. So that's me. Uh, well, how about you, Clint? You can find me at Clint Bartley on Facebook, uh, Metazotics on Facebook as well. Metazotics LLC on Instagram. Um, if you are not following Metazotics, if you want to do so for now, until we get the Clubroid and Clubroid radio yes. Facebook back up, 
or you can continue to follow it even after that. Yeah. Um, I do, of course, uh, post anytime we have a, a new show hits, so uh, you, you will be able to catch us there. Uh, you can email me directly at Clint at Metazotics. I'm sorry. Sorry. Oh, as an old one. Metazotics at gmail.com. <laughs> Um, and if you uh, ever send a uh, message to the Metazotics Facebook page, it comes straight to my pocket. It's going to be me you get and me responding. So uh, feel free to shoot any show recommendations, topics, guests, um, things you love, things you hate, things we should do more of, things we need to stop doing. Let us know. Yep. We, we want it all. Um, and um, that'll be it. Kayla, Alrighty. thanks again for coming on. Thank you yeah. for having me. This was a great way to start our year. So... Uh, whatever time of day it is, morning, afternoon, or night, hope you're having a good one. Uh, see ya! See ya!